just how important is it really? And as a follow-up to that, why is it important? You know, I would probably guess that most of us, probably about 100% of you, if I said, is God's word important, you'd raise your hand. You'd say, yes, it's important. In fact, that's why you're here. If God's word was not important, you would have no reason to be here because that's what we focus on. But if I were to say, well, why is it important? You might, some of you have to think a little bit. Let me give you one idea. An agnostic college professor, imagine such a thing, I don't know where you would find one. He was visiting the Fiji Islands, and he was very critical. He was remarking to the elderly chief. He said, you're a great leader, but it is a pity that you have been taken in by those missionaries. They only want to get rich through you. I don't know what missionaries he knew. No one believes the Bible anymore, he went on to say. They know better now. I'm sorry that you have been so foolish to believe them. The old chief pondered that statement for a moment, and then he said, do you see that great rock over there? On it, we smashed the heads of our victims, and we roasted their bodies in the furnace next to that rock. If it hadn't been for the missionaries and for the love of Jesus that changed us, you would never leave this place alive. You had better thank the Lord for the gospel, otherwise we would already be feasting on you. So I ask again, why is the word of God important to you? (laughs) Maybe you're not in Fiji, maybe you're not facing the prospect of being lunch. (laughs) But God's word does transform us as evidenced by these believers. It makes us new creations in Christ. It makes us think different. It makes us act different. It gives us a forward-looking hope for the days ahead and for all eternity. That's the transforming work of God's Word, the Bible. This morning, we want to take a look at how God's Word guides our activities so that we walk consistent with what He desires of us. And when I say walk, I'm talking about a continual flow of life, not just a moment on a Sunday or Wednesday or whenever you happen to come in the doors of the church, but how do you live in a manner consistent with what God desires for you? I was looking for a passage that had some things to do with the will of God and the direction of God. And as we've been through this series in the Psalms, I wanted a psalm that indicated that, and I think we have found it in Psalms 143. We are at a bit of transition. John and Allie are headed off to new things and bigger family, and life is changing. That means change for us as well. We transition from John's leadership to Kobe's oversight of our youth group. Uh, A lot of things change. Our young people are starting school as the fall comes. So how do you know what it is that God has in store for you, and how do you know you're walking consistent with his purpose and his will? I think one key to success, successful learning, is a right attitude, a good attitude. And I think the author of today's scripture was an individual with just that kind of an attitude. It was David, likely, that wrote this psalm, and he had to fight to maintain a good attitude. 
If you look through his history, especially these early days, you find David running for his life. That can be discouraging. I trust you haven't had to do that lately. David had struggles. But what I find is that he always took those to God. And incidentally, that should be a blessing to you and I. It ought to bless us to see that even the great names in Scripture, you know, these spiritual men and women that were giants of the faith, had troubles. And what we know is they were not alone in the midst of their trials. God is not giving them a trial and setting them off on the side and saying, well, work that one out. That's not God's attitude towards us. God still loves us. God has not forsaken us. And it ought to bless us that our heavenly Father allows us to pour out our heart and our feelings to him as David does in this psalm. Now, before we read through the psalm, I want to point to a key verse, and it'll give us a bit of emphasis this morning. It's verse 10, 143, verse 10, the first portion of it. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Teach me. Teach. As an instruct, guide me. Give me some insight. To do your will. Why? Because you are my God. The implication is I am needy. I am vulnerable. I am not self-sufficient. You are God. You are all the things that I am not. And so you that is, teach me who is not. This is the heart of David. And I think it's the heart of his success in life and in his relationship with God. Even when he was facing adversity and change, you see in a few moments when we read the psalm that more than anything else, he wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And I trust that's the attitude that you face And approach your service to the Lord with. I trust that that's the attitude that you face daily life with. The attitude to do and be in the will of God. The question is, God, what are you doing? How can I be a part of what you're doing? So I can align myself with your purpose and your will. As you go through the scripture, you find in Acts chapter 13, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, it says, then the people begged for a king, referring back to what was going on here, and God gave them Saul, Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin who reigned for 40 years. But God removed him from the kingship and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, David, son of Jesse, is a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. So as we approach life and our approach to life, we can choose to be like Saul who was removed from the throne because he wouldn't do what God wanted him to do. Or we can be a man like David, a man who had a heart for God. He wanted to do everything that God wanted him to do. Now, you know the story of David and you know that that didn't always happen. Now, the problem was David was still a man. He was not God and he was fallible. But his heart direction, his life direction was still focused on God and not on himself. He desired to do the will and the purpose of God even when it didn't always come about. You see, that one decision will make all the difference in your life on earth and it will make your difference in the life for all eternity. What your desire and focus is. 
So let me give you an aspiration this morning. The greatest aspiration of life is right there, to do what God wants you to do. And you're sitting in class or you're driving down the road and something happens, somebody says something, and your mind says, well, I think I want to do this. And the question is, what does God want me to do? You know, we've put it on bracelets and bumper stickers. What would Jesus do? That's the thought here. What would God have me to do right now? And then you do the next right thing. Psalms 143 gives us at least two clues, I think, on how God teaches us to do his will. How can we walk consistent with what he desires for us? Verse 1 begins, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my plea. Answer me because you are faithful and righteous. Now, let me stop there for just a moment because the basis of God's response is laid out here. And, And it's not our rights. And by that, I mean I have no right for God to give me anything that I ask for. Did you realize that? A lot of people go to prayer and they say, God, I need this and I need this and I need this and I need this. And by the way, do that and this and that. On what basis do you come to God and request these things? Almost demanding these things. Understand that we have no rights. If we got what was our just, we would be condemned to eternal damnation. But David says, hear my prayer, O Lord, listen to my plea, answer me, because you are faithful and righteous. He makes his plea based on the nature and the character of God, not based on who or what he wants and desires. He has a want. He has a need. But he goes to the one who is faithful and the one who is righteous, and that defines the character and the attribute of God. Now, verse 2 goes on. It says, don't bring your servant to trial. Compared to you, no one is perfect. And so David is looking to appeal to God. He's looking for an audience in front of the mercy seat of God, not the judgment seat of God. Verse 3, my enemy has chased me. He has knocked me to the ground. He forces me to live in darkness like those in the grave. I am losing all hope. I am paralyzed with fear. I remember the days of old. I ponder all your great works. I think about what you have done. I reach out for you. I thirst for you as parched land thirsts for rain. Interlude or Selah. You know, in the King James, they throw that word in there and it's uh, an interlude is, is a good term. It's a time probably in the, in, in, while they were making music and singing these things, they would stop and have a musical interlude. The words would stop so that you could contemplate what was just sung. And so you have a little music interlude here, and that's what's going on there. Soak in what's been said. And that's what we want to do here this morning. We want to think about how God will help us learn to do his will as we move forward from this point in our lives. And it was seen to me that David's trials made him thirsty for God. It seems that his trials made him more thirsty to do what God wanted him to do. Has that been your experience? Sometimes it scares me into doing what God wants me to do. 
I face a trial and I step back and I say, what did I do wrong? God, is there something I need to realign real quickly here so that I get back on the good side? It's not always the case. Any follower of Christ, if you've ever been through any serious difficulty, you can identify with the verses we just read, but I think especially this verse 6, I reach out for you. I thirst for you as parched land thirst for rain. What a description of spiritual thirst. And what is it that made David thirsty for God? Well, verse 3 tells us that his problems had limited his vision and his mobility. You know how that is when you get tunnel vision? All you can see is the circumstance that you're facing, and it seems so intense all around you that you can't see the perimeters. You've got no peripheral vision. You've got no perspective from above. His problems had knocked him to the ground, and he was living in darkness. He was, in verse 4, said, losing hope and paralyzed with fear. I've been there. Times when I've lost hope, times when things just didn't happen in my life because things were so heavy and confronting me, and I uh, had a hard time emotionally and everything dealing with it, and so you didn't take steps forward. You're afraid of what the next step might mean. And that's where David was. He was living off the fuel of past victories because he had no present successes. And so he was looking back and he was saying, God, I know that you have worked in the past. I I don't see it right now, but I'm trusting you because of that. And that's all that I've got to live on today. You know, in the last few years, I think shark attacks seem to have grown in intensity or at least uh, the reporting of them has grown in intensity. A lot of notoriety about them, and uh, of course, we just got through a shark week, I think, here just a couple weeks ago. A few of you are excited about that, I know. Uh, you know, one of the things that you learn about sharks, particular varieties of them, is that their length is determined by their environment. And so if you take this little six-inch shark and you put him in a little tiny aquarium, it will reach full maturity at six inches. But if you take that same little six-inch shark and you throw him out in Black Lake, no, you wouldn't do that, out in Puget Sound, that little shark, he'd probably die in the freshwater anyway, but he can grow to his full intended size of six, eight, or 10, or 12 feet. Size was dependent upon environment. On human terms, we could stay in our aquarium where it's safe and the surroundings are secure and boring. (laughs) Or we can swim in the vast expanse of the ocean that God has intended for us. There's more risk, but there's more opportunity, room to grow. You see, now God doesn't give us challenges in our lives because he wants to discourage us, but because he wants to bless us. He wants to give us greater opportunity to grow. And I'd say for John and Allie, as you guys go, grow. Trust the Lord fully in the days ahead. As a church, the same thing for us. Uncertainty, we're, we need to recognize our dependency on God. As individuals, we are dependent upon Him. We need to confess our dependency upon Him for our security and for His fulfillment and satisfaction in our lives. You know, perhaps there's an application for our nation there as well. We need to confess our need as a nation, our dependency on a holy God that has given us the blessings that we have enjoyed these many years. And we need to walk before him obediently, trusting in his grace, not in the wisdom of men alone. 
But adversity should make us thirst for God. Getting out of our comfort zone. Search for God. Search for his will. What can I learn from God in my adversity? That ought to be the question that we're asking. Do I need understanding for the troubles that others are facing? Do I need patience or long-suffering with others as they go through trials? Do I need maturity? Do I need endurance? Do I need humility? God, what is it that you're teaching me through the trial? Do you have a teachable spirit? That will determine how you quench the thirst in your life. Will you quench the thirst with God and his word? Or will you use the alternative beverages of the world, like the pleasures, materialism, popularity? Ultimately, those will be unfulfilling. Life is not always full of good news, but it doesn't have to be. Maybe we're like the fellow that came home from work and he said, Honey, I've had a really lousy day. If you have any bad news, just keep it to yourself. And all the men said, Amen. The wife, she replied, Okay, no bad news for today. So for some good news, you remember our four children? Three of them did not break their arm today. You cannot insulate yourself from the realities of life, can you? You can't hide from it. You can't run from it. (laughs) But you can learn from it. And with David, you can say, teach me to do your will. Now, look at the second half of the psalm, beginning in verse 7. He says, come quickly, Lord, answer me. My depression deepens. Don't turn away from me or I will die. Let me hear of your unfailing love to me in the morning, for I am trusting you. Show me where to walk, for I have come to you in prayer. Save me from my enemies, O Lord. I run to you to hide me. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your gracious spirit lead me forward on a firm footing. For the glory of your name, O Lord, save me. In your righteousness, bring me out of the distress. In your unfailing love, cut off all my enemies and destroy my foes, for I am your servant. David's heart is broken, but he keeps calling out to God. And in this, I think we see that a committed relationship with him makes us thirst for his will. It's a committed relationship to him. There's a number of statements in here of commitment that he makes. I love verse 7. I will die without you. That's commitment. I need you so much. You are my life. You are my breath. You are the air that I breathe. I need you. Without you, I cannot exist. Verse 8 says, I'm depending on you. I'm trusting you. Show me where to walk. He needed him for every aspect of his life. In verse 10, he says, you are my God. We've talked about that. You are God, I am not. You are uh, sovereign, I am not. And in verse 12, he gives the compliment of that. You are my God, I am your servant. I am here to accomplish your purpose and your will. Show it to me, what is it? David was searching for answers, even in the midst of his heartache, But more than anything, he was searching for God, and that's something that we need to remember. God doesn't want us to just search for answers. He wants us to search for him. It's about a relationship. 
It's not about doing my own thing. It's not about God filling my cup. It's about me being what he wants me to be because I love him. I'm walking with him. I'm growing in him. Christ is the answer to the problem, whatever the question. The uncertainties of tomorrow, the transitions of today, they all take a back seat to knowing Christ. So if the trials or the transitions and the uncertainties of life have brought you to a place where you want to know God more, you've come to the right place. And the Word of God is the answer, and we'd be more than glad to show you from the Word of God how to take the next step forward. You see, life is not all about success. It's not all about winning. It's not about living free from pain and disruption. Real life is about right relationships. And the most important relationship to build that foundation on is a relationship with Jesus Christ. As we grasp that truth, God will do amazing things through us. And John and Allie, as you grasp that truth and you live it, God will do amazing things that you don't even begin to comprehend. So maybe you're here today and you haven't begun a right relationship with God. You feel at odds with him. You can make a commitment here this morning, inviting him to be your savior, your guide, your Lord. Maybe you need to renew a commitment to him. You know, be advised. Jesus Christ has already made a commitment to you. And we have remembered it around the communion table. He sacrificed himself, his comforts, his very life, suffering the pains of the cross and the cruelties that led to that. And therefore, he gives you an invitation to enter into relationship with him. And when you do that, he gives you the power to live right in that relationship, a power that didn't exist before. Would you bow your heads with me? Maybe you're here and you do not know the Lord as your personal Savior. There's not been a time when you've confessed your sin to him and received him into your life, and you're trusting him and him alone for eternity. Would you pray something to this effect? Say, dear God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin on the cross and rose again the third day. So by faith, I receive the Lord Jesus as my Savior. You promised to save me, and I believe you because you are God and cannot lie. I believe right now that the Lord Jesus is my personal Savior and that my sins are forgiven through his precious blood. Thank you for saving me.